Morning, everyone. Well, we didn't get to have any questions last night, so this morning I'll just ask for any questions. Are there any questions? Yes. What's your name? Trevor. Trevor. Your staff is beautiful. What's it all about? Oh, that's um, an interesting question. It's um, the staff is the um, mark, a symbol of the uh, sannyasin, the renunciate, the the last uh, kind of station of life, if you will, um, with regard to the general idea of uh, spiritual progress in in the classical, romantic, ancient uh, India. So you had, for example, student life and a young person would go and be schooled by the the guru in you know many different subjects as well as um, the uh, spiritual subject matter all in a related way and uh, and then some of the students, probably the majority of them, would would marry. Hmm? Some would remain in the ashram. Hmm? They would go for, and study. And then, so then you have uh, your student life, and then you have married life, hmm? if you will, albeit that some students remain as students, um, monastics. And then... With married life, usually it comes to children and so forth. And then the third station would be retirement. Hmm? Retirement from the uh, any further development of family. And by this time, the children that might have come for the marriage have also been sent to school. And some of them have either remained as monastics or they've become family persons themselves. Hmm? So that say say you become a family person at about twenty five and your schooling is finished. So then in twenty five years you're gonna have you're gonna be fifty and you're gonna have sons and daughters that are twenty five and they're either gonna become monastics or they're gonna start their own families. Hmm? So person then typically enters into retired life, the man and the wife. Hmm? And so they return, so to speak, to a more overtly uh, renounced life and focus on spiritual practice like they did when they were in, in, in the ashram hmm? as, as students. Um, in between that, they had family life. So the basic ideas of family life, if you will, are praja, um, dharma, and rati. So, 
progeny, offspring, that's kind of the main purpose of the marriage. This is a classical Hindu Dharma idea. And then um, adhering to the, the, the Dharma in general um, in conjunction with a partner, hmm? pursuing the, 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 the spiritual life, and rati, so praja, dharma, rati, ra, and rati means um, intimacy hmm? between a husband and wife. So these are the main purposes, and they kind of go in that, in that order. Hmm? So um, having passed through that and having the ideas exhausted, desires that couldn't be retired um, without playing them out. In other words, we may think about the futility of progeny in, in, from a spiritual perspective, it, it, from a material perspective. Well, we're all here because of that. So <laughs> we, we appreciate it to some extent. But from a, a spiritual perspective, as I mentioned last night, human life is different from other species of life in that it gives us the chance to think about the fact that we exist and the ramifications of that, the implications of that. Other less complex of life, forms of life where consciousness has not evolved to the point of being aware of itself owing to the condition that it's in hmm, materially. Each material conditioning embodiment affords consciousness some room to be itself, if you will, or to be limited in terms of all that it can be. Um, to give you an example, well, fish are limited, they have to live in the ocean, let's say, in water. Birds are, they can live in the sky. Hmm? Fish can't live in the sky, and birds can't live under the water. Hmm? So in each case you have consciousness there, but it's it's limited by the particular karmic embodiment that it has, both in terms of its range of material experience and in terms of knowing itself. Hmm? In human life, when the self-consciousness reaches the point of self-awareness, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things is relative to what I just mentioned is that we as humans want to do everything. We want to swim at the bottom of the ocean and we want to fly you know, to, to Mars. Hmm? Because and the reason for this is because we are sensing hmm, the fact that actually we are consciousness and we are not uh, ultimately limited by matter. In human life, we're having a sense of that. Hmm? The, the possibilities of of a, of a self independent of of matter. We're not fully aware, but we haven't honed that. We aren't perhaps even involved in a practice to realize that, but, we, but we're expressing that. Therefore, through, um, in, in, in a kind of a forced and artificial attempt, we try to fly in the sky, we try to swim in the ocean, and so on and so forth, by making airplanes and spaceships and submarines and and so on. By yoga, you could do all of those things without, without any danger of crashing. So, human life is different. Hmm? It's all life is equal in a sense, but they're not all. All life isn't equally placed, and they're placed according to karma. Hmm? 
consequences for action. So it's like a machine. Nature's like a machine, a beautiful machine. But as we uh, plug into the machine, as we put some, a coin in the machine, then something's going to come out, hmm? whether it be a thought, an action. Hmm? Um, nature's kind of... To live a material life, we have to take from nature. Hmm? To breathe, we have to take from nature. And so there's a payback and consequences. So Dharma, in one sense, is about finding about basic consequences and avoiding some of them and so on. So anyway, this is human life is for this. Hmm? It's different from the other forms of life because it gives us the chance to make this inquiry and hear from the sacred texts, for example, and, and uh, transcend the limits of our humanity, which would be to live out the fullness of our human opportunity, hmm? to, be, to use human, our human life to its fullest possibilities. And so, while all other species of life are involved with mating, and maybe, you know, beyond maintaining themselves immediately, um, that's what they're most preoccupied with. The idea is that human life shouldn't be just preoccupied with with progeny. With uh, so, there's a period in the classical system allotted for that, hmm? and then there's there was a general idea or norm in society that you would move away from that at a certain point. There would be one section of your life, not in your student life, not in your retired life, and not in the renounced life, which we haven't gotten to yet. Those who carry the staff, that's the idea. And that's, so that period is the, is the married life. And then it's supposed to be engaged in the progeny and rati or the intimacy and so forth. In a limited way, that means with one partner. Hmm? I mean, in, in marriage, in other words. There were instances of kings having more than one wife in times gone by, but it was a different system, and it, it didn't play out like it does in uh, Utah or something today. Um, and you know, and uh, life sentences for child abuse in the name of you know polygamy and so forth it was a different idea. So. At any rate, there was this was this one period, like basically, twenty-five years from twenty-five. Let's say you marry till till fifty, and yeah, finish with this, and uh, kind of finished with it a little earlier than that because you, you know you, you, your wife can't be pregnant at fifty and then retire because one of the reasons you can't retire is you have to take care of your kids for quite a few years. So. Um, and, and uh, raise them, love them, and so forth, until they're you know on their own. You still love them, but they're on their own. And you've got other things to do hmm, that are important. And those doing those things, pursuing those things, in a retired life. And what I mean by retired life is not that you get a you know a, a trailer and drive around the country, you know, <laughs> or something like that. But retired basically from the life of acquisition and material uh, enjoyment that's allowed for within within the family life situation. Hmm? And it's more of a life of, of, of direct spiritual pursuit. There'll be some austerities. You might travel around, but just go from temple to ashram to ashram. Hmm? Something like that. Spiritual community to spiritual community, or retire in a spiritual community. 
seen as not a lot of gas, or there, we shouldn't use too much of it. So anyway, to uh, retire, and then um, so that then in student life there's celibacy, and in retired life there's celibacy. Hmm? In between, there's not, but it's also curtailed to some extent that propensity to within within a sacred kind of institution. Hmm? And, you know, that makes for, potentially, for a good family unit and balanced raising of the children and so on and so forth. And, and, um, and to be progressive in our societies, we should, as things about people and so forth maybe um, come, to, come to light. Uh, there should be licenses for that for whomever. Hmm. For example, the homosexual sector, they have a propensity for for rati, not for progeny. Hmm? But it's kind of an it's it's kind of a normal abnormality, if you will. It's a normal occurrence in nature that's abnormal, and it shouldn't be dealt with as if let's make it normal. Hmm? It's what it is, and. And um, it's a karmic, you know, result. And it's not just one thing that, for example, makes one, uh, gives one the karma of homosexuality. It could be any number of things combined together, so for the same for heterosexuality or whatever. So anyway, those, those persons should also be encouraged along the same lines <clears throat> in a way that, uh, that the, the, pr- the procreative urge, which is the which is kind of like what makes the world, perpetuates it. So you can see it perpetuates the world. And as spiritually minded people, we don't want to perpetuate our own existence within material world where there's birth and death and birth and death and birth and death. As far as you get, you start from scratch again, so to speak, materially, and to get out of samsara, to to transcend the samsara, to transcend the illusion of death and rebirth and be in touch with what you are despite the changes in life that include death and birth. Hmm? To be aware of the continuity of self throughout. So, uh, anyway, license for them as well, marriage, marriage license we'll call it, or whatever. They're together for 25 years and then, then 50. So then 50, they start to practice again, they return to a life of um, more direct spiritual practice where they're not, uh, they don't have the same potential to be distracted by, well, your kids might want to do something. They don't want to go to the temple tonight, you know. <laughs> they, want to, they want to do all kinds of things, especially in a society where you might be one family on the block that's interested in spiritual life and everybody in the whole town is interested in something else and your kids go to the same school because you don't have an ashram to send them to to be taught. And so, you know, we're in a different culture. Hmm? So... You have to look at what I'm talking about. We have to think how to kind of apply it in our situation. Um, so that's uh, another thing. But at any rate, at 50, then they return, husband and wife, they stay together and they help one another and they pursue the spiritual life. And then at some point, then a particularly qualified person may take the renounced order of life, sannyas. And then they become a teacher of the, the other... Um, um, sectors of society, and um, they have um, uh, I have 
been become accomplished in their spiritual uh, practice with this, with this whole life that I'm talking about is meant to culminate in. They've become accomplished in that. So they get a title like Swami. Swami means like master. It means who's mastered the mind, who's mastered the senses and their pull upon us and so forth. And such a person, Vacho Vegam, Manasakrota Vegam, Jiva Vegam, Udarapasta Vegam. Vegam means urges, so they're urges of the mind that take us somewhere. The urges of anger, speech, the urge to speak, uh, the urge to Vacho Vegam, Manasakrota, Jiva Vegam, the urge to taste, the urge of the belly to eat, the urge of the genital for pleasure or, or procreation and so forth. These basic urges are, are under control. Hmm? It said, so who has control those urges? Sarvam apimim, sarvam apimam pritibim sasyashat. He becomes the teacher of the of the earth. Pritibim means the earth. In other words, the earth, the world is ruled by these urges. Hmm? Material existence, we're being ruled by these urges. So who's risen above those? Hmm? rules over those urges is independent of the implications of bodily existence, rebirth, hmm, and so forth. Such a person is qualified then to help others along the path in in an official capacity, so to speak. Everyone can help one another, and we should, but to teach. And so such a person is well-learned, schooled in the theory and in practice. He becomes like a guru or she for the for the other sectors of society. So that is called sannyas or renounced life. And in India, then um, you know, while you have this kind of thing in different traditions as well, hmm? your elders and whatnot, so forth. We come from a you know, kind of a Hindu, our tradition, Hindu-based one. So. Um, and we, in certain aspects of it, we that are old, archaic, even and culturally very different from uh, our country here, the United States, and the and the, and the, the modern world. Even we still find them to be very that have charm and have meaning and value. Some of them are baggage that we leave behind in pursuit of taking the essence of that tradition and and. Um, Expressing it in the present times and the present culture, um, but not everything. Some things are worth um, have have value to be continued on with with regard to tradition and and so on. So um, so in in our particular tradition and uh, my guru and his guru, they used to give this staff, which was is an old tradition too to the uh, students who became renunciates. Now, there is, I did mention earlier that there's the possibility of, in monastic student life, of not entering into family life. Hmm? And so it's possible that a student may remain on in monastic life and become a sannyasi or renunciate at an earlier age, rather than at 60 or 65 after having gone through retired life and so forth. So my group awarded me this staff at 25. I was 25 in India at the time. And the title, name, and so forth. Um, and 
um, the particulars of this staff then, because there are different orders or different lineages hmm, that espouse and, and practice a slightly different um, approach to transcendence. We 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 are involved in a in in a bhakti tradition. It's a devotional tradition. There are others that are uh, knowledge-based traditions, like Gyan Yoga as opposed to Bhakti Yoga or Astanga Yoga is another path. They have their renunciates also. Mm-hmm. Um, but in our particular, then t- the staff will be modeled to 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 indicate something about the particular lineage and its philosophy or theology. Hmm? And so then who would be carrying one staff or another staff or a different marking like this, T-lock, there's T-lock like this, there's T-lock this with a dot or this way and so forth. These marked different lineages and uh, so in ancient times you could determine, oh, he's a Vaishnava, he's a Shaivite, he's a... Uh, from the uh, Ashtanga Yoga school or the Gyan Yoga, so on and so forth. Hmm. So, for the most part in India, there are two two types of staffs for the renunciates. One is called Ek Danda, Danda means staff, and the other is called Tri Danda. So, Ek means one, Tri means three, hmm. and Danda means staff, but it also means punishment. Hmm. So they carry the staff, but not to punish other people. Hmm? <laughs> In a way, I suppose, yes, but by it's kind of a punishing of oneself. In other words, they carry the staff and they take certain vows that, that go with that. That their body, for example, mind, uh, speech, that's three things, right? They'll only be used in the service of the Godhead. Hmm? And so the staff is like uh, a reminder for themselves, hmm? uh, in a sense. Um, and it, 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 it's in, it actually an empowered um, uh, article or paraphernalia. And um, they say that it should be carried for 10 years. So I've had it since I was 25, I'm 62. Sometimes I carry it, sometimes I don't. But... For the first 10 years, they're supposed to carry, and they're supposed to help to carry the day for them in the, in the lifestyle that they've, that they've evolved to and the vows that they've taken and so on and so forth. It's just the cyst. I mean, they have to have some level of realization to even embark upon on the path. Hmm? And so, uh, so a staff of, uh, of punishment, it's kind of a punishment in a way, but it's pretty nice to use your body, your mind, your words, your intelligence only in the service of God. It's, it's, it's the self comes out. But, but from a material perspective, it's kind of a punishment. Oh, you, you won't eat just anywhere. Hmm? You eat if the food is properly prepared under the right conditions, offered to the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the deity, for example. This is a kind of aspect of the yoga and so on. So, uh, so the basic difference is the ekadanda and the tridanda. So the ekadanda symbolizes the path of of jnana, where the idea is that the soul, the atma, and the Godhead, Brahman, are absolutely one. There's no difference between them. 
in that school of thought, the idea is that the difference arises only in relation to material life, and material life is an illusion. Hmm? In other words, if you feel it's hot and I feel it's cold, that's a difference. And the difference is really relative to your senses and your mind. With the senses, we kind of gather information about the temperature, with our sense of feeling, let's say, of touch. And you feel in your mind, which takes the data and makes a determination about it, good or bad, happy or sad, hot or cold, you determine it's hot. I have a different set of senses. I take the same input and it goes into my mind and my mind makes determination, it computes out cold. So we have a difference. But is it hot or is it cold? That determination is only relative to the instruments through which we're um, perceiving. Hmm? So we're not getting at the real picture, is the idea. It's not that because we have eyes, in other words, we can see. The eyes are getting in the way of our seeing. Hmm? We are the seer, we are the hearer, we are the experiencer, hmm? and so on. Hmm? And um, we have a set of senses as a result of karma, and their minds getting in the way of thinking, of knowing, I should say, too much thinking, and ears getting in the way of hearing. We can hear something, we can see something, but we come up with different conclusions about the nature of being relative to our different instruments that we are perceiving through. So to come out from underneath that, this is a basic idea. In bhakti tradition, we do that. In the gyan tradition, we also do that. Hmm? These are two different schools, right? Now, at the same time, in the bhakti school, the conclusion is that difference is not relative only to material existence and the perception of the senses. In other words, when we get beyond the difference, the superficial difference, resulting from limiting ourselves to the instruments of the senses for perceiving and knowing, hmm? when we get beyond that by yoga, we become one with the, the ground of being. Hmm? We find what we really have in common, not with all human beings, but with all, all life, we are consciousness. We are not matter. This is the ground of being. So acquaintance with that makes us aware of the extent to which we exist. It's, it, it, it's enduring. It's, we, we exist in a way that we can never not exist. Presently, without that standing on the ground of being, it looks like we might not exist at some time, and we're struggling to, to exist. So to come to stand on the ground of being and know that I, I be, I exist, and, and nothing's going to get in the way of that. This is really, in a sense, the goal of the Gyan Marg. And coming to that, all the differentiation of material existence um, is transcended. Uh, one feels there is no other. I'm at one with every, everything. I am the ground of being. So there's a kind of a sense that I am God, almost. I'm the ground of being. I'm the source of everything. Hmm? Uh, it's not 
uh, untrue. But in the bhakti school, our experience is there's some development from there, hmm? where we come to understand that yes, we are not the body, and the false perception of difference arrived at by the mind and senses should be transcended to find a commonality and a unity that we have with all beings and our source. But there's a, there's a nuanced difference between ourself and the source as well. Something like there's a difference between a ray of the sun and the sun. If we were sitting here and some rays of the sun come through the window, and someone says, oh, the sun has, is here. Well, it's true, but it's not true, right? The sun planet just didn't come in the room or we'd all be, we wouldn't be talking about it. So... So there's a difference, it's subtle, it, it, the quality of the light, of the ray, is the same in a sense as the, as the whole sun, but the ray is different than the sun. In fact, the ray of the sun could be separated, apparently, from its source, the sun, by a cloud. Hmm? Right? In other words, it could be a cloudy day and we could say the sun's not, the sun really is out and light is only coming because of the sun. But because the cloud, there seems to be a disconnection between the light, whatever dim light there is on a gray day and a cloudy day and the sun. So in the Bhakti school, our understanding is that, that the, the cloud of maya, of illusion, causes us to think that we are separate from our source. But the fact that that thinking comes about in us at some time indicates that there is some difference between us, hmm? even if we remove the cloud. Because the sun never comes underneath the cloud. The idea that God would become illusioned is a problematic philosophical idea. Hmm? It's a hard problem for the Gyan school to explain. Hmm? Actually, they have a difficulty with that one. All, all schools have difficulty with some philosophical point for, for make, making their point because philosophy can only articulate that which is beyond thought and words so far. But this is one of the big ones for the Gyan school where they think that we, that we, are, we are God in all respects. If I was to ask you uh, uh, what, what in this world most resembles God, hmm? what would you say, Ishan? What in this world most resembles God? You. In other words, consciousness is what most resembles God, what we are in essence. Yeah, because it's not material. Hmm? It's, it's, trans, it's supernatural. It's, uh, it, it transcends the, uh, the, uh, the realm, the range, the jurisdiction of matter. Hmm? So, so it's, in, it's categorically different. It's substantially different. That matter. It's of a different nature. So God is of a different nature. So we're so there's a likeness between ourselves and God. But in our school, we think there's a there's a difference at the same time. So we find now a nuance within tr- consciousness, not a nuance or a difference that arises only within matter that's illusory, but a real difference. Hmm? We find a real oneness with with the God and a real difference between ourselves and the Godhead which goes far to explain our present predicament. Hmm? 
Uh, and so then when we come out of that predicament, in the context of the school of bhakti, we realize not only our oneness with the absolute in quality, but the difference in quantity, which makes for the possibility of a doctrine of love. Whereas in a school of knowledge that posits ending ignorance is the be-all and end-all of knowledge. Ignorance is this difference that we make based on the mind and the senses. End this difference, we come to knowledge and be. Hmm? And be peaceful and be alone. There's no other. Hmm? Something like that. And sit and be. Hmm? Now there's some, there's some, it may be, it may be blissful to be. It may be blissful to be. But the question is, <laughs> in the bhakti school, that should we, um, what do you say it, should we, should we, should it be blissful to exist, or should we exist to be blissful? <laughs> you understand? It, it, it's one thing that it's it, that it, it's to to be to have a blissful existence. It's another thing is to exist for bliss. Hmm? In other words, if we, it's true that if we end the misery of this diver, false diversity that puts us at odds with one another, hmm? we'll be peaceful, and there'll be some bliss in that. Hmm? But in the bhakti school, we, we think that, that that bliss should not be part of existence. Existence should be part of bliss. That's a little bit the other way around. We exist for the for the purpose of bliss, which is like a no no purpose for love. So, for there to be experience, to experience bliss, to taste bliss, to to love, there have to be two. Now we could say, well, love means two becoming one, right? As much as I become one with you, then we are in love. But that, if we think about that, really, that would have to be some kind of a dynamic union where I make your heart my heart, you make my heart your heart. There's still you and me, but we became, well, we. Hmm? We didn't become one. We did, but it's a dynamic one. Do you follow? So in Bhakti school, this, this is our idea, that there's a possibility of a dynamic union with the Absolute, despite our difference, smallness in size, that constitutes a kind of a, a loving um, interaction. We call it rasa. Hmm? Rasa. It's mentioned in the Taitre Upanishad. Rasu Vaisaha. It's a aphorism. Brahman, the Absolute, is rasa. Hmm? Hmm. It's the, and this is the anand, in the Anandavali. Anandavali means the chap, Bali means chapter, the chapter of the Taitre Upanishad about Ananda, about bliss. So we have sought to plumb the depths of bliss. And bliss means love. Ananda means love. The Godhead is sought. The Godhead exists. Chit, cognizant, and Ananda, blissful. And we are Satchit Ananda, Anu, in a small, in an atomic way, hmm? in a small size, so to speak. Yeah? 
And so what is the most important component about ourselves? We say the bliss component is the most important. Hmm? If we were to divide these components up, the of 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 sat chit ananda, we find oh there are paths that correspond with those different aspects. The gyan path corresponds with sat. The ideal of the gyan path is to exist eternally. And they think that that that's blissful. And they're right about that. Hmm? And the knowledge in that path, the chit, is the knowledge that I exist, that there's no difference. Hmm? So it's basically a path for eternal existence, which in and of itself is constitutes knowledge as opposed to this temporary existence. And it's blissful in that it, it doesn't carry with it all the false differences that put us at odds with one another and, 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 and cause us to have to struggle hmm, with the difference between ourself and the body. We don't know what we're struggling. So that path leads to like shanti, shanti, shanti. So these fellows and in that path, or ladies, as may be the case, they carry the ek danda. And it's just got one danda. You notice here there's a, there's a couple of them in here. Hmm? It's actually four. And then there's this hook up here. <laughs> we're getting to that. Um, so uh, they carry just one, and there's no there's no hook, and it means one. That I'm one with God. There's no difference, not between me and God or anything else. There's no difference. It's all one, and there's not a lot to say about it. Hmm? Basically, hmm? Um, so that that's a path to transcendence. Now. You take the yoga path, Astanga Yoga. Astanga Yoga is about omniscience, samadhi. In yoga, yoga samadhi is about omniscience. Hmm? It said that the that the perfect yogi becomes omniscient, and the best means for accomplishing that is to embrace the the yama of what's it, um, Ishwar Pranidhan. Ishwar Pranidhan. Ishwar Pranidha means to submit to God. Hmm? It's a little bhakti in there. Hmm? A little bhakti in there. And so that the, 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 the what what is the real realization, the end, if you will, of yoga is yoga samadhi and an omniscience like the Ishwar. You don't become the Ishwar, but you become like the Ishwar. It's the eternal meditation on the Ishwar. Ishwar means controller. So it means this aspect of the, this cognitive aspect of the God, it all knowing. Hmm? It's like you find in yoga. Yoga is about knowing about everything, about how your your organs work and and so forth, and how to you could sit there and you know massage them and so forth and uh, and so on. So it's it's like you know you, you're knowing everything about the body, subtle and gross and so forth and and on it, and on, based on a technique for realizing that, hmm, the knowledge that comes from that, we sort ourselves out from matter, and we identify with the Ishwar. So this is a path that's focused on on chit, and there's bliss in there's ananda in chit, and there's being in chit too, obviously. Hmm. There's being and knowing. Hmm. There's more than the, in a sense than the knowing in the Gyanmarg, because in the Gyanmarg, 
the knowing is the end of ignorance, ending the di- the differentiation of ignorance, that ignorance of the material ignorance. But in yoga, there's a knowing of another. There's a knowing of the Ishwar. Hmm? Um, and it's a knowing of what the Ishwar knows in its all-knowing capacity. If, if you could take the absolute and just concentrate its knowing component, hmm? you know, being, existing, knowing, loving, sat, chit, ananda. If you could just concentrate it and focus on the knowing chit, cognitive aspect, this is what yoga samadhi is about. Hmm? Now we go to bhakti. We went for the gyan marg, the path of knowledge, the yoga marg, now the bhakti marg. Hmm. Path. Bhag means path. So the bhakti path is interested with ananda, with the loving aspect, obviously. Bhakti means devotion, it means love, bhaj. It comes from the Sanskrit root bhaj, which means to, it means to give, to share, and to give and take, kind of like that. Hmm. Um, and to, uh, well, anyway, yes, yeah, so we are concerned with that, the loving aspect. Sounds reasonable. Hmm? Love is, 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 is not a fantasy, we say. So we're interested with, uh, there's, a, there's a false love in material existence, but there's a real love. So we're interested with the Ananda feature of the Absolute, and this is the Bhagwan. And, and, and so in that uh, feature, the, the idea is that we exist and know to love, hmm? rather than loving to exist and loving to know. Hmm? So in the in the Gyanmark, there's a loving to exist. So there's the bliss of I exist, hmm? and in the Gyanmark, there's the bliss of knowing. There's I mean there's a I exist and I loved and I and I know and I love love knowing. Hmm? And then the Bhakti Marg is I love loving, and I have to exist and to know in order to do that. <laughs> so I'll uh, accept existing and knowing. For the purpose of loving, hmm? so these are the, this. <laughs> it's uh, and when you talk about it like that, it's fairly obvious that the the loving idea sounds a little bit more desirable. More, uh, it resonates more with with our own relative experience in life, which is but the soul trying to find itself. In other words, we are ex- we want to exist, and we want to know, but for what? To love. You could have an existence that didn't know. That's true. But you couldn't have a knowing that didn't exist. You could have sat, an existence that didn't know. But if you have sat, if you have chit, you have to have sat also. In other words, if you have knowing, you also have to exist. Now you could have a knowing existence that wasn't blissful. But if you were to have bliss, Ananda, you have to have sat and chit also. So sat, chit, ananda. There's a little sat, chit, ananda in the sat of the jnani. There's a little sat, chit, ananda in the jnana of the yogis. And there's a lot of ananda. And there's a lot of sat and a lot of chit, actually, in, 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 in the prayojan, in the goal of bhakti. Because that, as much as I only want to know and I only want to be or exist for the sake of loving, as much as the knowing and the being, the existing, are kind of subordinate to the bliss, at the same time that becomes 
the, the best knowing and the best existing. Hmm? If one uh, um, exists only to love, that's also the biggest existence. Hmm? If one exists, knows only to love, that's also the biggest knowing. Hmm? So the idea is that we have Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. These are the goals of Gyan, Yoga, and Bhakti. Bhakti, Bhagavan. And, and this is the goal of the Bhaktas. So we acknowledge, as Yoga Sadhana acknowledges some difference slightly, Gyan Marg acknowledges no acknowledges non-difference, doing away with false difference. It acknowledges unity. Yoga Marg, there's some uh, slight difference between myself and Ishwar. In Bhakti Marg, there's a big difference, hmm? but there's also a big union, hmm? a, a union of will, a union of love. Like if I say, Golok and I are one, what does it mean? Golok, you and I are one. It doesn't mean I'm you and you're me and we've done away with one another. We're on the same page. We're, we're, we're together in heart, in spirit, in purpose. And so our ideal is to become one in purpose with the God. And so we, so, so here you have like, um, in the, in the tree dunda you have, that's actually four staffs together, tied together like this. Something like body, mind, words, intelligence, all used in the service of Bhagawan. And then you have these two poles here, and this represents like this bowing down that we do. Hmm? So all these things, always bowing down to the absolute, which indicates that I acknowledge some difference between myself. I'm not, if I'm so the so the ekdanda, the one dunda people, they never bow down. Hmm? That's the idea. I'm one. There's no difference. Who am I going to bow down to? Hmm? <laughs> so, so this is the jiva dunda here. This represents the the the, the, the individual atma. And there's some difference between atma and, and and Bhagawan enough for there to be a dynamic union. A, a more interesting and arguably a more comprehensive union. Hmm? Because the whole range of sat, the whole range of chit, is really fully understood when we understand, uh, when we taste the full range of of ananda. Hmm? So it's called a tridanda, a, a triple staff, something like that. There you go. Yes. Uh, I'd like to know why you would take sannyas when the Lord Himself recommended that in this age there should be no sannyas. Well, there's a statement like that or two in the sacred text that in Kali Yuga, the present age of hypocrisy and so forth, that uh, sannyas is, among a few other things, is forbidden. But it, there are different types of sannyas. So it speaks of a certain type of sannyas that um, is forbidden. Karma sannyas. Um, but... Um, while and to illustrate that point, hmm, you you want to say that the that the, that the sacred texts say we should not take sannyas in Kali Yuga, and that God speaks through the sacred texts. So God is saying don't we shouldn't take sannyas in Kali Yuga, right? But as the other day we were talking about Yuga avatars, 
we identified the Yuga avatar for Kali Yuga as Sri Chaitanya. Then he took sannyas. So obviously, well, God may have said this over here, but he did this over, over there, something like that. So there must be some place for it. Therefore, we have to look carefully and we see, oh, there's different types of sannyas. This certain type should, should, is, is not appropriate. Other types may, may be. And he took sannyas with a certain purpose in mind hmm? as well. And so uh, in the Gaudiya or Bhakti schools where sannyas is offered, then um, they, the sannyasis take sannyas for a certain purpose and largely for being an, a, a, a visible kind of a teacher. Uh, if we were just going to renounce and meditate, then no need. But sometimes for the, for the sake of uh, distinguishing oneself from the public, in a society where this would be understood, for example, who carry the staff, what people think, oh, here's a person I can get knowledge from, and I respect that person, and when you respect the person, there's a teachable moment, and so he can teach. Hmm? You know, if I was to go, years ago, when I was young, I travel in India with my staff on a train, and people would surround me and ask questions. Hmm? If I didn't have it, they wouldn't. And then I had the whole train run, I'd be ask, answering philosophical questions and so forth and so on. So, and then they'd give me a little donation and I could pay my fare to the next place, <laughs> something like that. So, hmm. so there's a place for that, hmm. some place for that. But um, it's, it's not a necessary thing hmm, for spiritual progress. It's necessary to be renounced, ultimately, and to be realized, but it's not necessarily that you have to formally announce it either. Maybe if one's guru thinks that that's appropriate and that, that, that the student may be able to help others by that or so forth, then he'd single him out or her out and, and uh, designate them as such. Everyone should be a sannyasi in spirit or renunciate. And relative to their situation, also, we don't renunciation. Of course, is not a method; it's a fruit of a method. There are some schools where the method is renunciation, and then they have these very extreme, um, you know, s- sitting next to the fire at noon in in on the hottest summer month, you know, or bathing in the in the Ganges. Uh, at Haridwar, Rishikesh, up to the neck in in, uh, in January, you know, mm-hmm. so to to go and enter into extremes of hot, for example, and cold, and and then learn by that a very hard way that there's no difference between hot and cold. That's a, that's a hard path, um, and people are not as always as successful on this. They make out either. And we'll see some of these. We're going to show a film, if you're here, uh, we're going to show a film about the whole circus of Indian spirituality as it's displayed at the Kumbh Mela. Kumbh Mela is a, every 12 years they have this big festival. So all kinds of yogis and pseudo-yogis and um, well, they assemble there. And I haven't seen this film, but it's called Shortcut to Nirvana. I don't know how, how much of a shortcut it really Talks about, but it, it displays different paths. We'll see how well, if at all, ours is even featured. But um, our path may not tend to stick out as much because it's it's not overtly um, 
as crazy as some of the others, as different as some of the others. You know, we're saying here, like, renunciation is not the path, it's the fruit of the path. So we just love Krishna. We chant, we sing. Renunciation comes about, gradually we hear about the need for foregoing material acquisition and so on and so forth. We, we, we refuse with that theoretical knowledge and we apply ourselves in bhakti and gradually that renunciation comes to, as we mature, to take place like fruits and fall from the tree or leaves fall from the tree, something like that. <clears throat> so everybody should be renounced in that sense. They should be pursuing bhakti wholeheartedly. Renunciation is a byproduct of it. For some people, renunciation is the goal. See, we see renunciation as how to get closer to people, not how to get away from people. Because if I step back a little bit and look at you objectively, then I can see better what you are, and then I can get closer to you. So, renunciation is a step. We move. What are we renouncing? Renouncing the exploitation that we're involved in, the taking from the world to support a false sense of self that I think I am. So we move back from the taking. And then we can see the world better for what it is. Then we can enter into it in a meaningful way and interact with it. So, anyway, we'll see some of these these uh, different the whole the whole menagerie, the whole zoo of Indian uh, spirituality there uh, on so why, Sunday. I think. If we have enough time. Why did Nityananda become upset and break the staff? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu carried the staff and Nityananda Prabhu broke it at one point. That's a fact. And uh, he broke it because in his ecstasy he, 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 he contemplated the fact that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was Krishna. And Krishna is, is, symbolizes, epitomizes, is <clears throat> the, like the, the, the center, so the enjoyer, the rightful taker of everything. In other words, we're not the takers. Let's say the body, the hand is not the taker, the tongue is not the taker. Only in a relative sense, the stomach's the taker. Why is the stomach the taker? Is it bad? No, because it has a power that the other aspects of the body don't. It has a capacity to take the food and transform it in such a way that energy can be given to all the parts of the body. Hmm? So we should give, we should sacrifice, hmm? but then there's, there's somewhere we've got to give to, right? So that's center, that's the idea of Krishna. Therefore, Krishna is depicted as the enjoyer. Hmm? But in the context of enjoying everything, the fruits of all sacrifice, that's the, that, that, that those fruits are digested by the taker hmm? and redistributed mystically to everyone else. So if Krishna is served... Everyone is served, is the idea. We're all the parts and parcels of Krishna. So, um, so he thought of Chaitanya, here he was as a renunciate, as Krishna, which he is. Hmm? And he's an incarnation, we can say, of Krishna for the age and so forth. And he thought, how can Krishna be carrying a staff? The staff, you know, this is austerity. You've got to carry, just to carry the thing is considered, it's not like a... Sh- that looks cool. I like to carry one of those. Well, you got to carry it around for ten years. You find, you know, especially when you go through the airport, it's a bit of a hassle, you know. So, uh, so anyway, and it's you know, it's for punishing, as I said, you know, the mind, the body, the sense, the intelligence. So, so um, he thought this is inappropriate. Hmm? Krishna's carrying a danda. Krishna becoming a sannyasi. I can't take this. So he, 
in his ecstasy, broke the danda when Chaitanya was bathing in the river. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was displeased with him externally. Internally, he was pleased with him. He said, well, yeah, that's true. But in this incarnation, I'm supposed to teach others like this. And I'm Krishna, but I'm incarnating as a devotee of myself to teach them. So please keep your ecstasy to yourself sometimes. (laughs) Something like that was the idea. Hmm? So I uh, actually, I I asked Prabhupada about that personally because one of my godbrothers had Guru Kripa's Maharaj was a sannyasi, had de- little deities of Gornatayan, and I did also, that Prabhupada told me I should worship. They're here on the altar. And so one day, Guru Kripa, he made little dundas for Gornatayananda. So I thought that was curious. So I asked Prabhupada about it. I said, you know, I've seen this. He said, no, no, that should not be done. That is why Nityananda Prabhu broke the danda of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Hmm? He said, we don't like to think of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as a sannyasi. We like to think of him as Nimai Pandit in Navadweep in his Madhurya, sweet Leela, because the sannyas makes him different from us. He sits on a higher seat and he instructs, although that sannyas Leela is very important because all the instructions come from there. Hmm? He's supposed to imbibe the instructions and then get close to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, transcend the Aishvarya of Vairagya, of detachment, hmm? and and live with him in Navadweep as a student friend doing kirtan, Parada Gobinda, and so forth. So... What else? What's the time? Um, Question? Uh, Um, Speak loudly. Rasamrita, she's asking if you can show the top of the staff for the viewers online. (laughs) Okay. This is the the top here. This is the Jiva Danda. So you can see he's bowing down. Hmm? So taking all the body, mind, words, intelligence, bowing down, something like that. Jiva Danda. Next question. Manan Gopal, he's asking, is there a significance to the orange and white threads binding these times? No. You've got to tie it with something. <laughs> Some thread, so... It's a little flashy. Yes? Not a very deep question, but I always thought it was three, three rods, three threads. There's four here. Well, they, they they look at it like this. This is one. This is two, three. They do the points like that. And this is like the body, mind, words, intelligence, something like that. Hmm. No. There's 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 three. There's okay. Here's what it's like. This body, mind, words. There's three. And there's but there's a fourth one which is the jiva danda. And the jiva danda. Well. Oh, I don't know if you can see it here. There's three. There's four here, you can see. Okay? There's four. But four of them go to the top. Or, excuse me, three of them go to the top. Hmm? Let's say body, mind, words. Okay? And the fourth one only goes to here. Hmm? And then it's bowing down. Hmm? So the third one is the jiva, the fourth one is the jiva dunda. Hmm? And instead of going to the top, it stops here and it bows down. So it takes it. It takes his body, mind, and words, and pays pranam obeisances to Bhagwan. So has the concept of Vedavedic in, in what respect? Simultaneously, one and different. One in the purpose. You're one in purpose, but you're also a jiva dunda. I recognize right. that I'm not. 
Interesting. Cultural um, lessons, uh, discussion. It's more than cultural. It's, it's actually transcends the culture. So, yes, Agnide? Since we're talking about Nandas, um, I, I know like Srila Prabhupada, and his, dun- his Dunda was always like wrapped with the saffron cloth. Right. Is that just Gogia? Uh, Bhakti Siddhanta started that um, idea of wrapping the Dunda, and I think the idea was the, you know, to, to keep it... Uh, like you put your japa beads in a bag, something like that. Um, in South India, the, the sannyasis they don't do that, and there and, and there are Vaishnav sannyasis there too, who carry the tridanda. Some of them, they are quite small. Some of them, short, half size, and so forth. Now, Bhakti Siddhanta he fashioned the sannyas in Gaudiya in consideration of the Ramanujas, who are Vaishnavas that carry the staff, because previous to him, other than Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. We didn't find the Godias carrying the staff and uh, embracing the sannyas order and so forth. So he fashioned a sannyas order and he, he used, um, he, he looked to another version of Sampradaya and got some as a frame of reference and, and so forth. But that's something um, relative. So like, well, I have like a, like what they used to do in Iskon is that they, they would, they wrap it, and then we get a sack around it. But well, the sack and the wrapper are the same thing. Right. Hmm? So, so it was redundant. They put a sack around the wrapper. So, this is this is the wrapper. I guess holds it together. And and then uh, then I've got a sack for it if I go, you know, traveling something like that. Yeah. Yeah, the height is. I think. Uh, I think it's the same height as as one, or not more than this. They say. I think it's now the same same height. Something like that. I have to stand up. I haven't measured in one. <laughs> but uh, you know, those are. Um, what 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 you, you, you know? Some like Bhakti some Saraswati would go and take this, take that from here and there, and fashion it, and then so there's some relativity to that, hmm? and uh, he would come up with a system and so forth. And so for our, in the spirit of outreach with which he did that, so we are at the liberty also, persons like myself at least, to make some detailed adjustments perhaps if need be. You know, I I'm a little you know, again. Well, I, I can be a little, you know, speak in ways that cause people to rethink things, and sometimes and so forth. So, sometimes, sometimes I'll purposely do things to make people rethink things, also. And um, so, not wrapping it like the others, and then putting the sack on it, it does bring some questions, and that's good. Hmm? Let's see what we've learned today about the dunda. It's, uh, if it was all wrapped up, you would. Maybe you wouldn't have said, that's a cool-looking staff. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes? I was interested, why did Bhaktivinoda Thakur exactly uh, advise against uh, sannyas? Um, Bhaktivinoda Thakur advised against sannyas because many people were artificially renouncing 
at the time. And then because they didn't have the requisite realization to support that, they ended up being publicly addressed uh, as a renunciate, but privately doing things that even householders shouldn't do. Hmm? In other words, as you said, householder has a has a wife has one husband, husband has one wife, and they stay together and and you know make the intimacy more of a meaningful thing. Hmm? Um, so anyway, they were false renunciates, and uh, they couldn't. There was there was a preponderance of that hmm, in the religious and spiritual uh, climate of his times, and so he said that you stay as a family person and chant and no problem. Hmm? Um, and he encouraged that. But his son and disciple Bhaktisiddhanta Sotsitaku became a sannyasi and instituted the sannyasa order. And taking he took the lead from that, also from Bhaktivinotaku. So there is a place for that in Bhaktivinotaku's teaching. Hmm? Um... I don't remember the dates if he was present. I don't think he was, but what Bhaktivinoda Thakur had told Bhaktisiddhanta was to, to institute the Daibhavarna Ashram. Hmm? And to teach this Bhakti tradition uh, in other parts of the world, because this was only in India. So he had a vision, Bhaktivinoda, to interface this tradition with the modern world. Hmm? And his main instrument for doing that, besides the books that he wrote, was his disciple and son, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. So, by instructing him to do that, and this idea of Daivavarnashram, which would include some renounced order, then Bhaktisiddhanta had the liberty to come up with uh, for something like the sannyasa order, for example, for Chaitanya Vaishnavism. Bhaktivinoda wanted missionaries, so to speak, to go to different parts of the world and so forth. So in India, if someone was a householder, a married person, then you know, they're, they're just like everybody else because everybody's just, all species of life are making kids and so forth and so on. And, and so, but one who's a sannyasi, that's, that's different. That's a person who we can, who's, you know, gone beyond that. So they got attention. So he thought, we make missionaries like this, we'll commission them if they're sufficiently realized and they'll we'll send them to different parts of the world and they'll certainly stand out. Hmm? Right? If a monk comes to America, then... He's, you know, he's in the 50s or 60s, like Vivekananda came in the previous two centuries back. He kind of stood out. Hmm? When my Maharaj came in the 60s, he was, as a monk, you know, he stood out. And so many of us young people, we were young hippies, you know, we listened to him. <laughs> yeah. You touched on four. Uh, could you touch on the Babaji? Babaji. I mean, you went before society that I've heard that there's another Babaji. Yeah. Okay. Well, Babaji is um, that's a term and it's in, in, in the Bhakti tradition of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu it has some prominence. It is a the difference between the sannyas and the Babaji is um, a difference between one who is positioned for teaching and one who is positioned just for internal practice. Hmm? And so, um, um, for example, I think I mentioned the other day the idea that 
the Trinada Pisunich and a mandate of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu to be more humble than a blade of grass, more tolerant than a tree, and so forth. To give, expect no honor for yourself, give honor to other. The Babaji has to honor this in a literal way. Hmm? So the Babaji will sit and chant. If he travels anywhere, he he walks. Um, and if people bump into him and so forth, then he just doesn't say anything. Hmm? And he, he doesn't go against the environment at all. If people, if the environment goes against him, he tolerates that. Hmm? He uh, accepts no honor, even if people honor him. Hmm? He runs away from that. He gives all honors to other, paying respects not just to uh, learned people, but to anybody. Hmm? But they tend to live in, in, reclusively. Hmm? So, yeah, let me finish. So where the sannyas is a public figure, you took the same person and, 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 and put him as a public figure, hmm? then he would have to accept honor on behalf of the Godhead hmm? to help other people and so forth. He would have to uh, correct the environment if someone said something uh, uh, you know, inappropriate, did something inappropriate, and so forth. Hmm? Now, within the sannyas, there, to go a little more in depth, there, there are different stages. So, classically, the sanyas, the, let's just talk about two of them. There's the Parivrajak and Paramhamsa. Paramhamsa varam paramartapatim patitodarane yativesha yatim. This was a song sung about Bhakti Siddhanta, written by Sridhar Maharaj. It's sung in every Gaudiya Math. Prabhupada once told us it should be sung every day in all of my temples. It's a song written by Sridhar Maharaj, glorifying their guru, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, who had taken this sannyas order and instituted it in our lineage. It says, Paramhamsavaram paramartapatim patithodarane yativesha yatim yativajaganai. It says he was a paramhamsa. But he acted like a paribrajaka, hmm? like a yati, hmm? and he carried the staff, which means he had the highest realization, but he positioned himself on a slightly lower level hmm? for interacting with people and doing outreach. Hmm? So, in that sense, the Babaji symbolizes the Paramahamsa hmm, stage. And the sannyas symbolizes the stage just below that, where there's some activity, and that activity is useful for teaching and for increasing realization also. Hmm? Um, but at the same time, one can be the Paramhamsa, like Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur, and position oneself as a Parivrajak hmm? for the sake of, of outreach. So it's a little little complicated, but the basic difference, let's say, uh, both orders are the, uh, the uh, final order. The basic difference is Gostyanandi, Bhajananandi. Gostyanandi means he has some propensity for sharing with others. Bhajananandi means he, he has not so much propensity for sharing, that doesn't mean he's selfish, but he's, his propensity, it's like an extroverted and an introverted person. Something like that. So he has an introverted orientation. Hmm? And he's, it's fair, he can have his introverted orientation, that's fine. But then he has to take with that the literal uh, interpretation of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mandate.
to be humble like a blade of grass, to not uh, resist the environment. The environment fights against you, not to fight back, and so forth. Whereas the sannyasi, who's a paramahamsa, hmm, he won't take that literally. He'll take it in a dynamic way. Because after all, he's carrying a staff, he's sitting on a higher seat. You say, well, where's the humility? Hmm? So you think, out of humility, I, I, don't want, I don't feel comfortable personally, but for the sake of the service of the Godhead that I've been commissioned to speak on behalf of, I'll distinguish myself from the others, something like that. So it's a, therefore, he once gave a speech like that, more humble than a blade of grass, which is the poetic rendering of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mandate about humility. He said, you may wonder how why I'm sitting on this big seat like this, hmm? and I'm preaching that we should be humble like a blade of grass. And so then he gave a dynamic explanation of humility. Humility, not in an abstract sense, but humility for the Godhead. And so if one is driven or moved from within hmm, for outreach, then to deny that won't be humble. Hmm? So to follow that, to do that, and then take whatever may be necessary as super to superficially distinguish oneself from the crowd that they may listen and take advantage and so forth. Um, this is the idea. Hmm? Pardon me? You'll keep teaching. <laughs> well, Prabhupada did that. Yeah, that's 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 uh, that's possible. Yes. He's interesting that you bring this up because um, I was uh, twenty-five years old and I never met anyone like Srila Prabhupada and I was in a position in London on the Lenin's estate and I had to spend a lot of time with him because the big boys were always in London trying to open up uh, the rights to open the building in, in that zone in that town and all that and so I was left alone in charge of a small group and Srila, to take care of Srila Prabhupada on Lenin's estate. So, uh, uh, I would be t- going on walks with Sri Prabhupada regularly in the morning, and I, I, I didn't understand too much, but uh, something inside me felt that I have to be very referential. I didn't think like that in words, but, but I was, and uh, always walking behind and whatnot. And he was trying to loosen me up <laughs> constantly in a very funny way. And I won't, it's not the time, but I asked him a question about the spiritual master. And he told me, really, he said, in line with what you're talking about, he said, it's not my, I, I am nobody's authority, he said. Um, relative to anybody else because you know the way he walks and all that like the king of kings but he said but I have to act like this because there is no one will listen to me and <laughs> yeah. yeah. he would walk with, would walk with me he would do all kinds of things that he'd get an acorn in his boot and lean on my shoulder while I pulled off his boot and then Twenty steps later, another acorn would go in his food, and he would say, "Why do they do that?" He would try and 
your reverential the distance that that his that, you know. He said that he was feeling, and he is more humble than nobody's master, nobody's anything, but he has to play that role so people will listen. Very nice remembrance. Thank you for that. Srila Prabhupada ki jai. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu ki jai. Nitan Prabhu ki jai. Sri Krishna Janmashtami Mahotsava ki jai. Kaur Bhaktivedanta ki jai. Kaur Premanande.